Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Project Next, the podcast that explores the inside stories about what's next in modern marketing. I'm your host, Brian Martin. Today, we're talking with Matt Statman, CEO of Motive. Motive is known for both cultural and creative disruption in the world of brand communications. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. So, Matt, cultural disruption, that's a pretty heady topic, but really cool. How do you define it, and how do you know when you've achieved it? Okay, well, when we look at cultural disruption, really what we're talking about is what is the impact that we're having on the world, right? How are we influencing culture? As a brand, influence is the ultimate thing that you can have, right? Influence on the way people purchase, the influence on the, what they believe. And so when you're moving towards cultural disruption, you're really bringing up that amount of influence, right? And you're really doubling down on it and saying, what kind of impact can I have on the world? How do we get involved in you know, the conversation of today and actually influence it in one way or another? Ultimately, when you talk about cultural disruption, you're, you're really just saying, hey, I'm going to have a point of view on the world. I'm going to take action, and I'm going to drive others to take action so that we can actually influence the world that's around us, right, in really, really powerful ways. So for us, like when you're kind of measuring disruption, you kind of look at it qualitatively or quantitatively, right? Qualitatively, that's the beauty of the whole social world and the Twitterverse. You can see right away if you're having impact. You can see right away if people are responding to what you're putting out in the world and if it's actually influencing the way they behave. Or you can see right away, are you authentically a part of a conversation or are people just seeing you as a brand that's trying to drop in in a way that's totally inauthentic, right? And then obviously there's lots of quantitative ways, right? You know, we'd like to all say as marketers that we can look at sales. Is what we're doing actually impacting and driving scales? But then at the same time, you can look at Q scores, you can look at brand values and start to say, hey, are people starting to understand and perceive our brand differently because of the way we're behaving? And so we certainly always try and kind of you know, keep a lookout on that information. But for me, you know, I like to just kind of sum it up and say, like, like, look, are we having an impact on the world? Are we a part of the conversation as a real voice that's authentic and trusted and believable? And are people kind of connecting with us? And are they going out and taking our message to the next level? How do you deliver that? Well, I think it's it's something that as an agency, you have to really build yourself around, right? I mean, first and foremost, philosophically, you've got to have a lot of like-minded people who want to make an impact on the world, right? You've got to have the right people, and that's always been a big part of motive from the very get-go, right? Is It's a team of cultural disruptors. Secondarily, we worked really hard, and it's taken us a long time to find kind of the right operational structure that would allow us to have all the tools in the toolbox to create disruption. So our operating model is more that of like a creative collective where we actually have six studios. We've got brand comms, digital social, experiential content, brand design, and cultural strategy and insights. And the reality is they all work like independent studios and agencies in a way, but because of our experience so much in campaign development and IAT leadership, we actually work on our own to bring them together to create our own multidiscipline team. And what's great about it is we now realize that if you're going to do an experiential program, it's going to have a digital and social piece. It's going to have a content piece. And a lot of these you know, capabilities and a lot of these channels are so interdependent 
you've got to have the ability to bring them together really quickly to maximize the impact of any one of them. So right now, whenever we look at an idea, we say, hey, how do we find a lighthouse idea that can be really, really powerful and culturally disruptive in what it does? And then naturally in that big idea, in that lighthouse idea, there's going to be opportunities for engagement. There's going to be opportunities for content creation, for social amplification. But then even from there, you say, cool, we've done that there. People now are like, yeah, but like, let me be a part of that. Let me touch and feel that because just being the voyeur and tuning into it isn't enough anymore. Now people want their own experience because again, right? The whole idea is if you don't have your own content about an experience that's reflective of you, it didn't happen. So what's the brief a client brings you to get to that? Well, hilariously enough, a lot of times people come all the time. You know, experiential is still in this world that I've found a lot of brand marketers are just now dipping their toe into, right? There's a lot of people that don't fully understand it, understand how it should be used, still think about it very tactically. And what we always come back to them and say is, look, you're missing a whole part of this brief. You should first say, like, what do you want to achieve? Like, cultural disruption? Awesome. Now tell us some of the elements that you know you need to have a part of that, and then we'll work to build that into a broader-based experience or experiential component. So for me, what I love is, you know, a good example. You know, Mountain Dew has a partnership with the NBA. They came to us with the brief, hey, we need to be at All-Star Weekend. We need to disrupt. We need to be a cultural force. We don't want to just go down there and be another brand. We don't want to borrow the equity of the NBA, of the players, and all the other cool folks that are down there. Like, we need to be a creator. We need to be responsible for a cultural happening. So when people add that into a brief, that's when our team gets really excited. And, in, and you're not talking about, like, just the game itself. You're talking about the whole weekend, everybody who's in town. How do you create programming, so to speak, throughout that weekend. I think that's the cool part about All-Star Weekend, right? Is, of course, certainly it's about the game of hoops, but the game of hoops now is about music, right? It's about fashion, right? You see more kind of exclusive sneakers being, you know, unpacked and worn that weekend than you'll see anywhere else on the planet on any given day, right? It's about player interaction, right? It's about players' families. It's about the commentary around the game, right? And, you know, I think when we looked back a couple of years ago at one of our Mountain Dew stages, it was the first time Russell Westbrook and Kyrie Irving had been on a stage together to be interviewed. And that happened in our space. And that wow. was like, wow, this is like a moment that the world is going to tune into. And so the, the idea is when you go into any environment, you say, what's the landscape, right? And so when we're at All-Star, we're like, what's the landscape of this world? All the cultural kind of triggers that we want to kind of kind of pull and say, how are we going to do it? And how do we bring all those to life within the context of, of this experience and give everybody the equivalent of a first look, a cultural moment, a never-before-seen moment, an exclusive that only Mountain Dew could provide. And it's amazing how large that event has become. And yet you also do events that are so much smaller and much more intimate. You did something for McAllen last year that I thought was super cool. Tell us about that. Yeah, I find those most interesting because anytime you have an opportunity to go one-to-one -one and really deep with consumers, I think that's where the real power of experiential and engagement lives. And so with the McAllen, they came to us and asked us to do a new tasting event around their McAllen Rare Cask. Um, they were introducing it to the marketplace and they were saying, hey, we want to do some tastings. We've got to get some liquid on lips here, as they call it. Um, to start Everybody does so. tastings, though. So You're right. Everyone does do tastings, right? It's kind of been highly commoditized in the experiential world, especially in, in spirits. But 
But what we wanted to do was break outside of that, right? Um, we wanted to say enough of the 300 people packed into some kind of hall or bar where we're doing some mass tasting with an educational component. You know, McCallan is something that you drink with one or two other people, usually celebrating a moment. It's usually got some rich meaning to it. And we wanted to create an experience that would reflect that same level of elevated experience, right? So we did this thing called Behind the City, and we did it in partnership with Third Rail Productions, specialists in the world of immersive theater. Okay. And what we did was like create this hour and 45-minute immersive experience that essentially was a play that you were a cast member in. And it was taking place in the streets of New York City, down in Soho and Tribeca. And the whole idea was we all met in a bar where we all got our first tasting of the McAllen Rare Cask. And then we're asked to come in pairs of two, right? And we took everybody out, and one by one, people started to leave the bar, where they were greeted by the next kind of actor who was going to take them on the experience. And they went through an experience, and then boom, they were immediately separated. And then for the next hour and 30 minutes, you were on your own, running through the city of New York, coming across a cast of characters that ranged from, you know, uh, a garbage man sitting on the side of the street to up into an apartment where you were sitting down with a, you know, anthropologist who was talking to you about, you know, the people of New York City and their history to finding yourself over at the Roxy Hotel in a bar sitting there talking to, you know, a magician as he kind of talked to you about the magic of life perform some tricks just one-on-one with you while you drank a McAllen martini. That's crazy. It was crazy. So as you were going through this experience, you would kind of progressively unravel the dynamics of the story, and each milestone would be accompanied by a different drink. And, and quite honestly, it was, as all most immersive theater is, completely disorienting. No one had any idea what was going on until they came back full circle, met up with the person they came with, and then next thing you know, they're back at the bar having a drink. The thematic of the story, as we reveal to them, is really the whole idea of love lost, right? And that love is the rarest thing in the world. And much like the McAllen Rare cask, love is something to be cherished. So when you find yourself in the big city like New York and suddenly uh, spontaneously separated from the one you love and are asked to go through life or, in this case, an hour and a half experience without them, and then to be fully reunited in a really compelling way, you're like, wow. This is powerful. It's something to be cherished. And we then tied that into the messaging around the product. And, and it was cool. It was very cool. That's such a risky approach, separating people. Like, people aren't always going to enjoy that. Did you run into any crazy situations by doing that? No. In fact, in fact, they all loved it. I think right now, you know, when we talk about where the world of experiential is, the more unique an experience can be, the more you can talk about, like, holy cow, I was just like stripped from my boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, partner, and suddenly was like on my own. That's like a story worth telling. And so we found that people actually loved it. You know, I think what was kind of the tip of the hat for us here was the New York Times named it a a critic's choice for uh, the world of theater and talked about how, wow, McAllen found a way to seamlessly weave themselves into a space that that they had not played in up until this and did it very, very successfully. And so I think when you do something like that, that's that's kind of the highest accolade that you can get. So Matt, what's the necessity of disruption? Because not every brand is looking for disruption, or are they? You know, I would probably argue that they are. 
Um, I think cultural disruption, you can look at that and expect, hey, wow, we're doing huge fireworks and things are just absolutely changing. We've caught lightning in a bottle. Or you can just say, hey, it's a way of doing things that we've never done before and in a way that's going to be incredibly powerful and transformational for our brand. You know, one example of that, for example, that is not, quote, massive cultural disruption would be how we work with Ram Trucks, right? Ram Trucks has their whole world of the Ram Nation, which is kind of their community of Ram drivers that um, not only are their biggest loyalists, but also they can be the baseline community influencers. They can be out there in the world, you know, helping for the greater good and doing it with the Ram Truck, right? And so one thing that I think these guys have done awesome is they've created a ton of content, really compelling storytelling for that Ram Nation, right? Yeah. Which is, to me, very different than just living in the big Super Bowl ads and the million-dollar TV spots that make our trucks look tough and say, no, like, let's get real and let's communicate and dialogue with our community in a way that is really compelling for them. You know, I always think great brands, they have, they have their leaders, they have their stories, and they have their gatherings. And one great example where I thought we married them all is we went down to the Port Arthur Theater. It had recently been destroyed in one of the hurricanes in the Panhandle. And, you know, we were like, God, how can we really help that community? And how can we get Ram Nation involved? And we actually went down there and called upon Ram Nation to gather us in a rebuilding session. Wow. And yeah, they, they, and people showed up and we put money towards it and we rehabbed and rebuilt this little theater. And what was awesome though, and so that was kind of our gathering, right, is we then brought in kind of country music star's brother Osborne to actually help and participate in that rebuilding and then deliver a performance that night. Wow. So it was, it was really this cool thing where we had a gathering and we had our leaders, but then of course we captured it all for content and it became a 30 second TV spot where we actually partnered with Apple play to then kind of, you know, demonstrate that, Hey, Apple play comes in all the new Ram 1500 trucks and Hey, you can hear your favorite music, including brothers Osborne who were just down helping the Ram nation build this theater. So you um, can do good things and you could still get the product benefits across. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to me that that's a really good example of, disruption without necessarily being like, holy cow, there's a, a wow moment. You know, another thing that comes to mind when you ask about disruption is the work that we do with Hook Fishing. Um, Hook is a really cool apparel brand out of Charleston, South Carolina. It's just exploded and taken They're pretty off. pretty big in the fishing world, aren't they? Huge, huge. I, I would probably say they've kind of come onto the scene in the past four years and become one of the top brands for sure. Cool. But what's interesting is their cultural disruption was not just like, hey, how do we do one event that's really cool? Or how do we create a piece of content? It was more about how do we start to redefine the world of fishing in a way that connects with the next generation of fishing? Wow. You know, fishing is one of those sports and one of those, you know, hobbies that has just been around forever. And so, you know what? If you learn to fish, you probably learn from, you know, maybe your dad. Your dad probably learned from his granddad. And there's probably a lot of tradition and a lot of old school way of ways of doing things. Here, it feels a little sleepy at times. It feels but... a little sleepy, yeah. Here's the music you listen to, and it's probably country, right? right. <laughs> Here's the box fishing shirt that you wear, and it probably looks like it's two sizes too big. 
And these guys came in and said, look, we're going to do slim cut shirts. Wow. We're going to do really cool graphics and patterns, right? We're going to create these badass boats that don't look like any other boat on the water. And we're going to start listening to like electronic music and hip hop. And basically our challenge with them from day one is to been like, what is the archetype that we want to embody, right? And we've kind of found our way in this rebel archetype, right? And then you start to say, cool. Like that rebel archetype requires cultural disruption in everything we do, how we design our shirts, how we act on the water, the athletes that we sponsor, the content we create, the music that we play on our website, that we play at our tournaments. And so my point is cultural disruption doesn't just have to come out of a singular brief for a single program. Rather, cultural disruption can be embedded in the DNA of a brand and can be the kind of guiding light on how it acts and operates at all times. So you guys call yourselves a cultural studio and you deliver cultural disruption in a lot of ways for companies and brands. How do you disrupt in other forms of content? We do call ourselves a creative studio. I think what's interesting is as of the past 12 months, we've really been using a phrase of uh, that of a creative collective. And so while experiences is very big in what we do, we have a lot of brands that we manage their community and social presence. We work on brand communications and design like every day of the week. That's just part of what our agency does. I think what we really work to kind of specialize in is how do you serve as the maestro of all of those, right? It's in some hilarious ways we're going back to where marketing was 20 years ago back to a doubling down on the idea of integrated marketing communications wow that's uh, fresh to hear it, it is fresh because what's i think hilarious when i started in the business integrated marketing communications is where everyone was and everything was living under one roof we then saw everyone question the ability of all those departments. Well, can this agency really do digital, especially as we saw them emerge so quickly? Everyone wanted specialists. And we found ourselves in a world where we've been for 10 years, where every agency or every brand rather has 10 agencies on a roster. And quite honestly, what we've now found is that it's just too overwhelming for brand managers or VPs of marketing to navigate and guide 10 agencies. It's been tough. All right. So you get to a big idea. How do you roll that out? Give me an example of how you roll that out for a brand like, say, Pepsi. You do a lot of work with Pepsi. Yeah. You know, one thing that's kind of awesome about brand Pepsi is these guys are, first and foremost to me, they're, they're a culture brand, right? They're a lifestyle brand. These guys have been at the center of music and celebrity for years and years and years, going Forever. all the way back, you know, Michael Jackson, Britney Spears, you name it, right? And, um, you know, anytime you get a brief from them, they're like, you know, I, I love the phrase. They say, how can we create a cultural thunderclap, right? So a program that we did last summer for them that I really liked was they said, look, we need a summer program. At the time, they were going up against kind of Coca-Cola's Share a Coke program. And it created some fun collectability. And of course, we thought, okay, good idea, but very typical Coke, very kind of familial feeling. Um, how do we do something that could be really culturally driven? Something right for the new generation. There you go. And like, way to bring it back. We came up with this whole idea around emojis where every bottle of Pepsi had a different emoji. So we took almost the entire arsenal of emojis that are out there and even created some of our own and literally put them on a bottle. You know, there's at the time there was such affinity for emojis and just the idea of them being really cute, but it also became a conduit for expressing what your emotions of the moment were, right? Happy, surprised, sad, angry, you know, celebratory, you name it. 
And so um, we knew that this could be a really cool idea that could build collectability. You know, the idea is like, how many different emoji bottles can I get? And so we knew uh, on shelf that this would probably be a success. Great, it can work there. But like, in this case, we were like, how do we ladder this back to really doing something disruptive for a media perspective? And I love what we did kind of from a TV and content perspective. What we did was we took every emoji and we created these five-second micro stories that basically would just be fun little quippy pieces, and then they would go to an end card that then would show the emoji cans, or bottles rather, that would have kind of a fun little animation around them. Which is an emoji. I mean, it, it's nothing more than that. Nothing more than emoji. So, you know, some of my favorites were we just had the little crab emoji, and he was just like laying on a towel in the sun, and all of a sudden you just hear the sun sizzling, and he just turns over and he's a different color. The idea is he got burnt, right? Got it. You know, um, we had another one that was just like a, a Pepsi bottle where all of a sudden he's just sitting there playing with his friends, and all of a sudden the cap pops off, and it's almost like he, you know, passed some kind of gas. And it, <laughs> it was just hilarious, right? And so it was really disruptive, though, because these came in five-second formats, which allowed us to play them in a really kind of disruptive media buy, which is like some of them came out in five seconds, some of them came back-to-back as 10, and then we even had some that were back-to-back-to-back as a 15-second block. So this was, uh, quite honestly, had really not been done before. And so we loved being a part of that entire journey. On top of that, we worked to create another layer where we partnered with Jimmy Kimmel, and we recreated the old Cindy Crawford Diet Pepsi ad when she's actually kind of gets out of her car at the gas station and moseys up to a Diet Pepsi machine, gets one, and takes a long drink. Created, Is there a Cindy Crawford emoji? There was, We created a Cindy Crawford emoji. Nice. Which was awesome. And, you know, that that got a ton of buzz being on Jimmy Kimmel and then obviously got millions of views online. So the idea here was we created an asset that lived on the bottle and packaging, but then we, wow, we just leveraged it in countless ways, right? We were at baseball games with big emoji balloons floating over the stadiums. I mean, <laughs> we busted out emojis anywhere and everywhere. And, and I think that's, again, just kind of what I mean, which is like, just look for the the big idea, something that you know will be disruptive, that will have cultural relevance. And then, you know, it's kind of easy to find the ways that it's going to come to life. Is it hard to sell an idea in like that? Or do people say, immediately see it because it's such a big idea? So the one thing that I've found is, you know, people in the marketing business, especially on the brand side, like, look, they usually know a big idea when they see a big idea. However, I had one client recently spend some time talking about the need for his agencies to play a role in building evangelists for an idea on the client side. True. Very Uh, true. Yeah. You know, the idea that, hey, maybe we do see a big idea, but we don't always know how to sell it like the agency does. Right. So we're spending a lot of time and energy in how we build a yellow brick road around a big idea so that when we present it, a client's like, yeah, that definitely looks like Oz. And then we work really hard to give them all the tools they need to become internal evangelists and salespeople for that idea as well. It's so important to do that because ideas can get derailed sooner than you think, even when they're a good big idea. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot of clients believe now that they are creatives. And so that's become a journey that we are on as well is, you know, yes, we are the experts, but I think more importantly, we are collaborators and we're partners. And that's, that's big now. Do you consider yourself storytellers? Absolutely. I think you've got to be a storyteller. And I think, you know, 
that's the crux of everything, right? You know, we are in the business of telling stories. Again, whether it was a three-second story with emojis, whether it's a 30-second TV spot, or whether it's a piece of immersive theater where we're unfurling a, a hour-and-a-half-long experience, that those are all stories that we're either telling and asking consumers to buy into or they're stories that we're asking consumers to be a part of. So cultural disruption works, I could see, when you have a four-year-old brand going into a category because you don't have a heritage you need to disrupt. You're just like, let's start from ground zero and build this out. How do you disrupt when you've got an infrastructure that you need to turn around to turn it younger? Well, I think that has its own challenges. I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, you can always say like the market leader, right? The market leader is rarely a disruptor because <laughs> everyone's True. just trying to disrupt. Them. Right. Quite candidly, I don't have any clients that are market leaders. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the clients that we work with are designed to be disruptors at their core, right? And so I think even though organizationally you can be really big, I don't think that prohibits you from being a disruptor because there's a lot of number two brands out there that are, are really working hard to do that. Um, so I think, you know, the biggest thing though is you need people on the inside that are willing to do it, that are willing to take risks. That's most important. We see on a lot of our brands, you know, new clients kind of come in, they rotate through, and every one of them has a different level of risk tolerance. And I think, you know, with great risk comes great reward, but at the same time can come <laughs> great failure. How do you get your clients through the risk tolerance? Like, because you're a cultural disruptor, you need to really understand those cultures. How do you go about doing that? And does that knowledge help you move them along? Um, I talk really loud, really fast, very passionately, and very excitedly. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I, there was something to that. <laughs> Look, I think first and foremost, clients have to trust the partners. And I think you have to have a proven track record. We do take chances, but we take calculated chances. And I think we always talk about here are the variables that will determine success. Here are how are we going to measure that. And, and we're very just precise in that. And so I think being a risk taker and being a disruptor does not mean that you are necessarily a gunslinger. Uh, we are some of the most conservative people that I know when it comes to the agency world and creativity. But because of that, it allows us to take risks possibly more often than other agencies would. Okay. So this is a Project Next podcast. So where's the world of advertising and marketing going next? And then where's motive going next? I have one canned response to that question that I've now been using for 10 years, which is I have no freaking idea where the hell it's going. I think if there's anything that we all know for sure is that we don't know for sure where it's going. The one thing I know is I think experiential will continue to be hot. Um, experiences are kind of you know, the gold standard for currency right now among millennials and even the younger generation. And so I think experiences are going to continue to be big. I think stories are going to continue to be big. How we tell them, where we tell them, I, I can't even, you know, pretend to predict because I think we'll continue to see a lot of changes there. But I think that's why it's important that we continue to not only stay very strong in our storytelling and big idea capabilities, um, but we also continue to have strong partnerships that can allow us to navigate all the various waters that are emerging right now. 
you know, I've, I've been telling my own team and I've been telling new clients because the old clients know is that I think in five years, our agency will probably only create 50% of the work that we are, quote, named for. I think the rest of the work will come in curation and collaboration with other partners, and it will come in co-creation with whether it's what now is being kind of culturally called influencers. But the idea of an agency coming up with an idea and holding it as its precious baby all the way through production is, is long dead. It's now about finding your space in this landscape and just owning it. And for us, it's always going to be creativity and big ideas because, you know, the, the execution, how it gets executed, what the channels and mediums will be, those are, those are changing daily at this point. And what's next for Matt Statman? Yeah, you know, what's interesting for me is I've now had an agency for 18 years. And in that time, you kind of always see the importance of certain areas kind of ebbs and flows in terms of what needs your attention. And, you know, the past five years, I've been really focused on the creative and how could I really impact the work and really continue to push it. And what's interesting for me right now is I think the agency world's in a little bit of a talent crisis. You know, there's so many opportunities for young people coming out of college um, to go into so many different arenas. We're now watching young people serve as their own content and social media consultants at the age of 24 and 25, and, and retention is harder than ever before. So for me right now, I'm really focused in on talent. How do we continue to create a culture that not only attracts talent, but develops talent, breeds it, and creates a, a dynamic where people want to stay, right? Where people feel like they can not only be their best selves, but can creatively flex a number of different muscles on any given day. Because that's what I think we see now, right? When you know our parents' generation, one job their whole lives, our generation, two, maybe three. Now it's like a new job, new opportunity every day, right? Wait, we don't get a pension? <laughs> <laughs> not yet, not yet. Right now, uh, I, I've probably reached this point in my career where I'm like, you know, creative doesn't rule the roost. Uh, talent rules the roost, and, and that's where I've got to spend my energy. Well, good. I hope you continue to bring in a lot of talent. I hope so, too. <laughs> Matt Statman, CEO of Motive. Thanks, Matt. That was fun. Thank you, Brian Martin. And thank you for listening to this edition of Project Next. Until next time, I'm Brian Martin. <laughs> <laughs>